Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And we have a new start time for those of you who are watching this live. Um, it's going to be this time um, from here on out. Uh, the six o'clock start time has always been difficult for me because of what I do for uh, a real job. Uh, for one thing, I've, a lot of times I've, I run late or run right up to the deadline. Another thing is a lot of my guests are on the West Coast, which means that they would have had to start at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And a lot of people have actually turned down being on my show because it's too early for them uh, because they have a job and things like that. The only um, place it hurts at all is when I talk with someone in Europe. Um, it was a little bit easier in that case. So uh, I am switching till 7 o'clock. So it's going to be on uh, KGRA radio from 7 to 8 every week. I may go longer on the uh, live uh, with some of the guests and uh, this uh, this day is no exception with my good friend, Lee Spiegel. Uh, you may know of him from the Huffington Post. He was uh, writing there for years, but he's also known all the way back into the 1970s. He brought uh, UFOs to the UN. And we're going to be talking tonight about this great album that he has that he shared with me. And this was in interviews that he did with key people back in 1975. Uh, it was released in 1976, I believe. He may correct me on some of that. We have a couple of clips we're going to play from that. Uh, this week's uh, blog by Charles Lear is a UFO and occupants in British Columbia, Canada. Charles Lear has been writing blogs uh, consistently for us for uh, several years. I really appreciate his great work. He also has a book out. I encourage anyone that would like to get his book, and it is called The Flying Saucer Investigators. Uh, he was on here as a guest, and we were talking about that, but he does great work. It's a great book. I'm getting a lot of feedback about his book. A lot of people really love it, and without further ado, I'd like to bring in my friend, Lee. Welcome, Lee. Well, thank you, Martin, for inviting me on. I was I was curious, uh, when are you going to tell the, the audience about your day job working in the intelligence community for the government. Well, eventually, I, um, <laughs> uh, eventually I will, you know, along with, uh, yeah, Richard Doty and those other people I work with. Yes. <laughs> well, we, we need to know what you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, I don't think there'll be any surprises like that coming out of me, but, uh, ah, okay. but you know, you, you never know. You just might've started something, a rumor, and now it's, you know, UFO Twitter. I can't wow. wait to see have we we've around. opened the Martin Willis Pandora's box. That's right. That's right. So you've had a couple of changes lately and you're on Unix. How do you say that? Is that did I pronounce that correctly? <laughs> no, it's it's actually unX. Unx. Uh, yeah, okay. just the, just the letters unX which really kind of stands for unexplained. Ah, uh, and, and so it. it kind of encompasses all things paranormal. So I not only um, am I doing my own show there now uh, on Thursday nights, but I'm also the managing editor for the Unex magazine. That is a quarterly uh, issue. And I've had some really interesting stories so far. I've, uh, what I've brought to the magazine was instead of just writing a story like I used to do with the Huffington Post, um, I, I, I'm offering uh, for the monthly, well, it's not a monthly, it's a quarterly issue. Each issue will have basically the interview of the issue. And, and I'm choosing really interesting, who I think are newsmakers in the field of paranormal UFOs. And, and in fact, uh, you are familiar with the gentleman 
who is my interview subject in the current issue that just came out. The overall theme of the magazine is time travel. And my interview is with Montana Tech uh, archaeologist, anthropologist, Dr. Michael Masters. Yes, great guy. He, he's going to be coming up on the show in the next, uh, I think, the next month or so at yeah. some point. Yeah, he's, a, he's very funny. He's very interesting. And what a theory. He has a, a really great theory. I mean, it's as good, if you ask me, as good as, good as any other theory that's out there. He, he has he's, he's opened my eyes. Uh, you know, I've actually gone through changes or my attitude about UFOs over the last 50 years that I've been involved with reading and researching and, and offering information to the public about UFOs. And, and I remember when I first started out, my attitude was, oh, they must be from Alpha Centauri. <laughs> they must be from the Pleiades. Oh, why not Zeta Reticuli? Yeah. Uh, and, and my attitude was, this technology must mean they have to be coming from other planets. Now, I've sort of modified that. I think that some UFOs, like our, our old friend, nuclear Stan physicist Stan Friedman, yep. you, used to say and says on the album that we're talking about tonight, he, he starts it off by saying some UFOs are uh, definitely, you know, intelligently controlled extraterrestrial vehicles. Yes. Uh, and I believe that. I don't think all unexplained UFOs are that. Because, geez, as we now know, is there anybody out there who hasn't yet seen the new images from the James Webb Space Telescope? They're just beautiful. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this, this to me, if anyone ever says to me, hey, well, what do you think is proof that we're not out, that we're not alone? That's proof. Look at the images and what it's showing. And it, it will make all of us seem so Insignificant. I was going to say insignificant, but maybe that's not the appropriate word <laughs> to use because I don't want us to think that we're insignificant. But, oh, my God, the, the images are now showing and, and the scientists are saying without denying it, yeah, we're definitely not alone because look at who our neighbors are. They're everywhere, everywhere we look now. And now we can see right there. We're looking at a very, very tiny, tiny grain of sand image That's of right. outer space that shows thousands of galaxies. And, and people have to understand, if they don't know what a galaxy is, we live on a planet. Our planet is one of several that is in orbit around what we call the sun, but the sun is a star. We know that galaxies are made up of like billions and billions of stars. And now astronomy is telling us those billions and billions of stars in each galaxy contain, they have planets orbiting them. Mm -hmm. And and so the numbers are, are so, it's not scattered, it's just mind boggling. We, we almost can't conceive of what we're talking about here, that, that we, I don't think anybody that logically thinks about this will say, yeah, we're, we're the only ones out here. No, we couldn't possibly have been. Would a creator of the entire universe have only chosen our little planet among other planets, 
going around one star among the billions and trillions of stars and galaxies, why would the creator have chosen only our little planet on which to put intelligent life? Right. Can't I buy agree. This. You can't buy I agree. This. I always love this Arthur C. Clarke um, saying oh, the yeah. two possibilities exist. Either we're alone in the universe or we're not. Both are equally terrifying I mean, yeah it, it's like wow we have to we have to grow up uh to the possibility that that we're not alone and back in 1968 at the at the air force academy uh in colorado springs in a in a textbook a science textbook that was only seen by Air Force cadets, you know, our future military leaders, and the uh, the science physics textbook, which co was called Introductory Space Science, Chapter 33, was titled Unidentified Flying Objects. And in this chapter, in 1968, the Air Force described to their cadets very strong cases of where humans, humankind, mankind, has been reporting and interacting with unidentified objects going back almost 50,000 years. And they, they outline and spell this out to the cadets. Well, if that's true, if humans have been seeing these things in the skies and reporting these things, and people are now seeing and reporting the same things, what are we talking about? Are we, it's, it's, it's no longer valid to say, oh, it must be the angels of the Lord, or it must be the gods. No, because we don't think like that anymore. Hmm. We, we, think, right. in, we yeah. think in terms of what we now know is part of our own reality. Yeah, uh, that's so a really good point. Because, boy, you know, I mean, there's, a, you know, the talk of, of fairies and the talk of, you know, all, all the way along, leprechauns, maybe even that's, you know, who knows? What, yeah. Uh, but the, the, it kind of fits the times, whatever yes. you know, societal times are. Um, so, I, you know, here's a question. I, I don't believe in all these years that we've talked and known each other, I don't believe I've ever asked you this question. Uh-oh. Maybe I have. But, <laughs> <laughs> all right. No. Are you an American? No. Um, <laughs> are, what got you interested? I know you started, you were in the 70s, you were interested in this topic and doing amazing work. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But what got your interest to very begin with? How old were you when you first were fascinated with this topic? Well, I'm, I'm going to say that I first began to hear about it in the news uh, around, around 1970, 71, um, when uh, a book, actually, no, maybe a little earlier, the book called The Interrupted Journey by John Fuller. Yep. In, in which he described uh, the amazing story of Betty and Barney Hill of New Hampshire. And I grew up in New Hampshire. And in fact, I went to college just a few miles south of where their close encounter, abduction, whatever the incident was, happened. And when the story broke, it broke first in New Hampshire and became a big story before it went national uh, because it was really the first story of anyone in America, I believe, where somebody actually claimed to have been abducted or kidnapped and taken aboard either a ship or taken somewhere uh, where they were uh, they were put under examination by some kind of beings. 
And there's that's probably an updated version of the book uh, from the original. And uh, it, it, I, I became very, very good friends with Betty Hill. This was after Barney had passed away. And she and I became friends in 1975 when I was working on my uh, my documentary record that we'll talk about later. Um, and just, just to meet her and to get to know her and spend time with her. And, and you and I are also friends with uh, a woman who's probably the the most knowledgeable expert in the whole Betty and Barney story uh, would be Kathleen Martin. Yeah. Uh, Kathleen, who is an expert in her own right in people who are now, who call, they're called experiencers, people who have had the close encounter of the third kind experience. Uh, but what people don't know, unless you tell them, is Kathy Martin uh, was the niece of Betty and Barney Hill. Yeah, and and so when Betty and Barney returned home, having lost two hours of time, somewhere along the journey from Canada to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, the the first person that Betty called when she got back to their home, uh, she got on the phone and called her sister, and on the other end of the line where her sister was was listening to this encounter story, was a young Kathy Martin who was hearing her mother's side of the story. So, so Kathy was like the second person to hear about this. Uh, and it's, it's an amazing story. And, mm -hmm. and I was living in Concord, New Hampshire at the time. And, and so Kathy and I didn't know each other until later on in, you know, in our lives when we met and became friends. Uh, mm -hmm. Just the whole, the whole Betty and Barney Hill story. So when the story broke, it really got my attention. Yes. Uh, yeah, because I was still, you know, in 1970, I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And the only thing I was interested in doing at that point was leaving New Hampshire, stuffing a suitcase, <laughs> grabbing my guitar. That's right. Getting on a Trailways bus in Concord, New Hampshire, and, and going to New York City and, and trying to live the life of a folk singer in, in Manhattan and to try and get a record deal. Because and by the way, yeah. I, I know you're you're humble about this, but <laughs> Lee has some amazing. He has an amazing voice, singing voice, and beautiful, beautiful music. Really, um, I, I know it's not out there to share, but you did share it with me, and I just want to say I'm very, very impressed. Um, well, and, and my friend you. Donna as well. Well, I, I I thank you. You know, when you're when you back in the '70s, or even the late '60s, when you when you were a folk singer making the rounds of Greenwich Village in New York, and you wanted to, to make a name for yourself uh, and get a recording contract, what you had to do was to go to Greenwich Village and go to different clubs and the place that everyone always had to go to. And I went my first week in New York. There's a place called The Bitter End, very famous club where all of the folk singers, going back to the Peter, Paul, and Marys, the Gordon Lightfoots, the Bob Dylans. Yeah, you know, all these people would always go to the bitter end. And uh, and you go there on the mic, the open mic night. And, uh, and I went there to do, and you could invite anybody you wanted, if you knew anybody in New York <laughs> who might be interested in seeing you. And I was so nervous knowing that just the fact that I walked into the bitter end with my guitar thinking, what the hell am I doing here? Maybe I should just go back to New Hampshire, <laughs> give up the dream. <clears throat> um, 
But no, I, I did like a four or five song set that they would let you, then to be like a smattering of applause. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and you hope that maybe nobody ever heard you. All you ever hope for in a moment like that is, are the strings in tune? That That's all you really hope for when that happens. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah. those were the days. But and but that landed you in New York, where you've stayed all these years. Yeah, yeah. And and at one point in 1973, I was working a day job while still trying to get something happening with my music. I was working at the, the biggest music store, a retail store in the country called Sam Ash Music, um, and I was uh, I was a salesperson. And I sold musical instruments. One day, Jackson Brown walked in, and I sold him two guitars. And it was great to to do that. And he was so happy with the, the sale. Uh, and what a great salesman I was with these guitars. He invited me to come to see him do a show at Carnegie Hall that night. And and it was like an amazing thing. My name was at the, the stage door at Carnegie Hall. They brought me up to his dressing room. And there he was tuning his guitar. And sitting in the dressing room was Linda Ronstadt. Oh my goodness! I don't remember much after that moment. <laughs> yeah, missing time. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I, I know, but it it was I was living for things like that. But in 1973, while I was doing this as a as a salesperson there, something happened within the same week uh, in October of 1973. Two UFO cases were so big and so important that, that they're still unexplained and they actually were paid attention seriously by the media. The case of the two fishermen, Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker. Oh, yes. Fishing on a pier uh, off the Pascagoula, Mississippi River. Right. In Mississippi. Yep. And something happened to them where they claimed that they were taken on board some craft uh, and they were examined. And what was amazing about that case, we've learned in years subsequent, there were witnesses on the ground who kind of saw this thing going on. And and the media got hold of it, and it stuck. Dr. J. Allen Hynek, uh, the, the astronomer, used to be the scientific consultant to the United States Air Force Project Blue Book. He was really convinced that there was something to that case. And I was at Sam Ash music one day selling things and in the back of the store there was a, a radio on on the local news channel and I happened to hear in the news about these two fishermen. I thought well that was amazing and I started paying more attention and in the same week over Ohio a four-man army helicopter crew almost collided with a UFO that they thought they were, it was going to kill them. Larry Coyne. Uh, Larry Coyne. Uh, Major Larry Coyne at the time. And we'll, he was, we're going to play a clip uh, on. So I think this is a good segue. Okay. In, uh, but continue on, but into what made you decide to do your your album. Well, that that's the thing. I there were so many people that that were were talking about UFOs, and I started reading books. And the first, one of the first books I got was called um, Beyond Earth, Man's Contact with UFOs. And it was written by husband and wife, Ralph and Judy Blum. And, and I knew at the time from reading the book, they had 
done a lot of interviews with astronauts, military people, people in politics, law enforcement, scientists, and they were working on what was then an NBC News white paper report, a news report about UFOs. So I knew that he was connected with NBC in some way. And I just loved their book. And I wanted I wanted to meet him because I thought, boy, I would like to hear the voices of the people that I'm reading about in his book. And, and if there's a way that I could do something like that, that would be amazing. But I didn't have the right connections at the time to to make a pitch anywhere to any record company. Um, and, and I knew at the time in the mid 1970s, uh, CBS, Columbia House Records, which was a, a, a subsidiary of, of CBS Incorporated, they had they were doing nightly infomercials, some of the first infomercials on TV in prime time, and they were selling to viewing audiences recordings, vinyl recordings of uh, the, f- the famous hits of Mitch Miller and the gang, uh, Montavani and the Strings. And you know, if you order now, let us know if you want the vinyl record or if you want instead a track tape. We'll send you whichever one you want. So I thought, well, this is great. No one's ever sold a record about UFOs. And so I, I, I wanted to meet Ralph Blum. And, and I figured out a way of how to do it through NBC. And, and I, I was able to uh, meet someone at NBC who, who, who thought it would be a good idea if I, uh, if I just was able to, t- they gave me his mail. They knew he was out of town and they liked the idea. And there's Ralph and Judy's book that you just showed there. And, and they said, we've been trying to get a hold of, of Ralph um, to give him his mail because he's been gone a while doing some work. Um, why don't we wrap it up for you and you can bring it to him. And I said, that's a great idea. Thanks. I'd love to do it. And, and so that day, same day, I took a cab up to their apartment in New York City and uh, rang the bell and there was no answer. So I couldn't actually just give him the mail. So I, I got the super of his building and, and said, I'm, I'm delivering some mail for Mr. Blum. Can I give it to you to give to him? And he said, sure. So I wrote a little note to give with the mail. Dear Mr. Blum, um, I, I'm a big fan of your book. I've got an idea of a way to help promote your book with another idea that I'm thinking of. Um, would love to meet you. Here's my telephone number, Lee Spiegel. And I gave all that stuff to his super. And a few days later, my phone rang and and I said, hello. And I heard this voice. He said, are you Lee Spiegel? And I said, yes, I am. He said, this is Ralph Blum. Who the hell are you? And how the hell did you get my mail? <laughs> And I'm thinking, am I in trouble here? Did I did I not make the right decision? Um, my father loved what I did. What I did, <laughs> but Ralph said, "What do you want?" And I I, I told him my idea, and he said, well, "Okay, let's meet." And from that point on, we became friends, and he had connections. Their book that you just showed was published by Bantam Books. And, and so he knew all the people in publishing and production and marketing at Bantam. And he had friends, and I had some friends in the recording industry. So we worked it out to do a pitch to the people at CBS of the idea of letting me, with Ralph's help, 
contact all these people that were in his book. He gave me all their contact information so that I could start calling them and asking them if they would be interested in having me come to visit them wherever they were in the country and interview them for a vinyl documentary recording that I was going to produce for CBS. And people said, sure. And we worked out the deal so that uh, if, if they bought the record album from the TV commercial we ended up having for it, uh, if, if you didn't like the album or the eight-track tape, well, okay, you could send the album back to us, but keep the book, keep the Ralph Blum book as our gift. <laughs> How about you know? that? Yeah, you don't you don't see much of that kind of stuff anymore. No, no. But it was the first yeah. time. Uh, it kind of became an instant classic in in ufology. It was the first time that a major recording company like CBS offered a UFO product to the public. It was the first time that a UFO documentary uh, was presented on TV in a two minute infomercial, um, and it was one of the first UFO products that Dr. J. Allen Hynek chose that was offered for sale in the renowned Edmund Scientific catalog at the time. Uh, Edmund Scientific approached Dr. Hynek and asked him if he would choose some products related to UFOs because they wanted to devote an entire section and page in their science catalog. Um, and so he chose a variety of things like best books he liked, best slideshows, and mine was the only record that was offered. And it was like, wow, uh, it was it just I couldn't believe my luck of getting that far uh, so quickly. And so, OK, I came to New York with a guitar looking for a record contract and I finally got a record contract. But it had <laughs> nothing to do with folk singing. It was about chasing extraterrestrials. Go figure. <laughs> well, it's great. And I'd like to play. I'd like to play a couple of clips. I'll I'll start sure. out. This is uh, from side one. Okay. And uh, so just for the listener and the the people watching live, it's a uh, it's just it's six and a half minutes. The other one is uh is about four minutes, but this is six and a half minutes. I'll play it right now. Here it goes. October 18, 1973. A terrifying encounter takes place between a four man crew aboard an army helicopter and a UFO while the crew is en route to Cleveland, Ohio from Columbus. This mid-air drama is witnessed by several ground observers and is considered to be one of the most impressive sightings in history. The commander of the helicopter, Major Larry Coyne and his crew, thought at first that the light on the horizon was a radio tower beacon. The crew chief on the helicopter observed a light, a red light, on the east horizon. He then informed me that the light was closing on the helicopter, that it was coming at us on a collision course. And I looked to the right and I observed that the object became bigger and the light became brighter. And I began to descend the helicopter towards the ground to get out of the collision course path. And this object continued to come directly at the aircraft. It was like a missile locked onto the helicopter. It looked like we were going to collide with it and we braced for impact. Then the, I heard the crewman in the back say, look up, and I did, and I observed this craft stop directly in front of us. It was hovering right over the helicopter. We assumed it was a high-performance fighter, but when it stopped directly in front of us, all four of us realized it was no high-performance aircraft. This craft, from the angle that we saw it, was cigar-shaped. These four men are trained military personnel with thousands of hours of flying time behind them. 
What occurred next might seem like science fiction, but it happened. We were 1,700 feet. At this time, I was worried we were going to hit the ground. And I looked at my altimeter, and the, our helicopter was 3,500 feet, climbing 1,000 feet a minute with no changes in the control. We went from 1,700 feet to 3,500 feet in a matter of seconds and never knew it. And there was a bump like turbulence, at which time we had control of the aircraft again. And then we continued on to Cleveland to encounter a UFO. When it does approach the aircraft, you have no idea what it is. Well, I think if it wanted to collide with us, it could have. But you can't get away from it. You don't have that much time to respond. Some UFOs are really flying saucers. In other words, are really somebody else's spacecraft, intelligently controlled extraterrestrial vehicles. Stanton Friedman, nuclear physicist, who says we must keep open minds regarding the reality of UFOs coming from other planets. They probably come from a variety of sources for a variety of purposes. Certainly there's an intelligence behind the maneuverability. And one of the places where even people who want to believe in UFOs come a cropper is they don't understand the maneuverability. That's not mystery, it's technology. When somebody says that that bit of UFO behavior is impossible, what they mean is, I don't know how to do that. And if I don't know how to do it, it must be impossible. Well, that kind of approach is obviously ridiculous. I mean, it's not scientific. In our own space program, many UFOs have been reported by the astronauts. The first sighting took place in June of 1965 on the Gemini 4 mission. Astronaut Jim McDivitt caught sight of a strange-looking object out in space. At the time that I saw it, I said there was something out in front of me that were outside the spacecraft that I couldn't identify, and I never have been able to identify, and I don't think anybody ever will. We were in drifting flight, and my partner, Ed White, was asleep. The spacecraft was drifting around, and as it was rotating around, I noticed something out in front that was a white cylindrical shape with a white pole sticking out of one corner of it. It had about the same dimensional relationship as a beer can with a uh, smooth pencil sticking out one corner of it. I couldn't tell how close it was, and I couldn't tell what the size was. I thought I might run into it, so I turned on the flight control system. And in the meantime, I grabbed two cameras, which were floating in the spacecraft. And I grabbed one and took a picture, and I let go of it, and I grabbed the other one and took a picture. As the sun shone on the window, I could no longer see out, and the thing just disappeared. I never did find out what it was, and nobody else ever did either. They checked the NORAD records to see what they had up on radar, and there wasn't anything within a very close range of us. I've seen the photos that were released. I've seen them published in magazines and newspapers. Now, I went back and went through each frame of all of the pictures that we took after the flight, and there wasn't anything in there like what I had seen. General McDivitt has made it absolutely clear that NASA never did show him any pictures of the object which he photographed. Another astronaut, Colonel Gordon Cooper, originally was assigned to a jet fighter group in Germany during the early 1950s. He recounts the day a group of circular objects passed over the airbase. A weatherman spotted some strange objects flying apparently at fairly high altitude with some large binoculars while tracking a weather balloon. Before long, the entire fighter group was out peering through binoculars at these groups of objects coming over and all in very strange patterns resembling fighter formations. But unlike fighters, they would almost stop in their forward velocity and change 90 degrees sometimes in their flight path. We never could get close enough really to pin them down, but they were round in shape and very metallic looking. 
Personally, I believe in UFOs, and my personal opinion is that I think that they are very likely travelers from some other planet, if not in our galaxy, in a neighboring galaxy. Visitors from some planet that is hundreds or thousands of years more developed than we are. I think we can navigate equally as well as they do, but we certainly don't have the sophisticated propulsion systems that they apparently do. Colonel Cooper also recalls an incident that took place at the Edwards Air Force Base Flight Test Center in California. And to this day, the photographic evidence is unavailable. The case of one that landed out on the dry lake bed right out from a number of camera crews we had who filmed it. And the film was there and sent forward to a safekeeping somewhere in Washington, never to be seen again. We'll play a clip, uh, Lee, from the other side in a, in a little bit. So this is just a small clip. It's uh, I think it's uh, 20 some odd minutes long. And this is just, a, that was a six minute clip from one side. Uh, 20 minutes, some, 20 some odd minutes on to each side, I believe, right, Lee? Yeah, and, and you know, Martin, really, for all these years, 44, 45 years later, every time I hear any of these clips or any of these voices, and, and it reminds me how fortunate I was and how lucky I was to get to meet these people and to talk to them uh, and to have them say things about what they encountered that people are still claiming to report today. It, it's like nothing has changed. Yeah. That, that's that's the, the most important thing. It's like if I just decided to get involved with UFOs today in 2022, I, I might not have the passion about wanting to remind people that this is nothing new that we're hearing about in the news. It might be new to people who haven't really spent much time thinking about it, uh, but everybody needs to be reminded that this has been going on, like as the Air Force told the cadets, it's been going on for tens of thousands of years. And it, it's so frustrating to me that nothing has changed. And yet we get little bits and pieces. The government now, just in the last few years, has kind of acknowledged the reality of UFOs. Um, the Navy has shown us their little videos. Now everybody's talking about the Tic Tac videos, the Go Fast video, the FLIR video. Oh, wow, okay, the Navy is like chasing these things. And I keep wondering now, after all the decades, ever since the United States Air Force closed Project Blue Book in 1969, 1970, and after decades of denying that, that anything unbelievable happened at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Denials, denials, denials. All of a sudden, when the Navy started talking about, just over the last few years, about their own jet fighter pilots having encounters with UFOs off the East Coast, off the West Coast now, almost on a daily basis, I, I'm saying to people, where's the Air Force? Why, right. why, have, why haven't we heard from the Air Force? Because exactly. technically, isn't the Air Force protecting the skies? Protecting the skies. Like, hello, Air Force. It, it's almost as if they're saying, you know what? 
we've had enough egg on our face for a long time. Let the Navy deal with this. That that's what I'm feeling. I wonder. It's it's been a puzzle um, why they have not. You know, I mean, you would think that it would they would be in the in the front on this um, because it's it's the skies. I think the Navy has (laughs) done a great job. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's so weird because you, you'd think that they that they would would want to do something like together. Okay, Air Force, since we have jurisdiction over the skies, we'll cover all the things in the skies. You Navy, you've got the oceans. You cover the USOs, the unidentified submersible objects. So you know you do the yeah, that's right. the sky. That makes more sense. <laughs> I yeah. know. Let's work together. But no, the Air Force is like nowhere to be seen. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think that all reporting now, the there's going there's some changes. So all the re- there will not be the stigma about reporting for the Air Force as well, for all military, from what I understand. Right. I mean, they're, they're trying to make it uh, more uh, available to um, military personnel who want to report something and give them specific routes and and places to go to and ple- people to talk to, but it it doesn't. It doesn't solve the mystery of what we're talking about and what we're dealing with here. I don't. I don't want to know who to report something to. I want someone who's in command, and I don't know if that's anyone who's in the United States or even in any country. Maybe it's a United Nations thing. But but I I think what the public really deserves or needs is some equilateral international voice, something or someone that speaks for the nations of Earth, for all the citizens of Earth to say, all right, folks, now that we have sort of acknowledged the reality of many UFOs, we're not just ridiculing people anymore. We're not making you think that that thing that you saw the other night that was zigzagging in the sky, we're not going to try and make you believe that was Venus. Venus doesn't behave that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we're not going to make you feel like you don't know what you're talking about. And we're not going to do, we're not going to ridicule and ruin people's lives anymore like it used to happen. We, we want to get rid of the stigma. And the only way to do that is to say to you, we're looking into it. We thought at first it might be Russia or China and some advanced technology, but maybe. Maybe we're not going in that direction because the the properties associated with the phenomenon, the maneuverability, the characteristics are all the same things that were described in 1947 in a memo by Air Force General Nathan Twining, Twining. to, to the Twining. Air Material Command. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, that was back then. They weren't even calling them UFOs or flying saucers. They were known as flying disks. Right. And and in that that, that that memo begins with the phenomenon reported is something real. It's not imaginary, it's not it's not made up. It it has objects that approximate the size and characteristics of man-made aircraft that have incredible maneuverability, blah blah blah, especially when approached by uh, friendly aircraft, they're very evasive. 1947. I love to remind people this was a real document. In 1947, 75 years ago, they the military was talking behind the scenes about 
the things that are still being encountered by the military. What is wrong with this picture? That's right. I mean, this this long ago. Yeah. And and, and the military talking about it. And yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of people have said, you know, along the lines of the more things change, the more they, they stay the same type. Of oh, thing. yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I'm going to pull up that the twining memo, but but um, I have it here. I just have to convert it. Um, what about this album that you have? Yeah. Uh, are you going are you going to be able to offer that? Yes. So people can actually listen to it. In my, and I do have that other clip I'm going to play in just a minute. Here. Okay. Uh, my, my plan is that um, because it's still relevant, everything that's on this album, all the things that the people mentioned, talked about, it's all relevant all these years later. And a lot of people have been asking me um, if I'll ever re-release it. Yes, I'm going to soon re-release re it as like an anniversary presentation. And, and what I will do, Martin, is as soon as I'm ready to go with that, I will let you be one of the first people um, that, that will offer it to you, to offer it to your, your listeners, and then we'll put it out there. We'll, we'll post all kinds of notices about it. We'll do it through the sure. Unix network that I'm on. But I, when, once I make the decision to do this, I really want people to hear this because every time I hear it, and God knows how many times I've heard it now yeah. <laughs> over the last you know five decades, I keep thinking, my God, this is still this is still relevant. Now yeah. you obviously were right there when these people were talking, right? Oh yeah. So that there's some icons here, Jay Allen Hynek, of course, who you knew, oh, um, who yeah. who had you know a friendship with. Um, but you know, Gordon Cooper, I think he was an amazing guy. I always yep. thought he was wonderful. And uh, several other people, and I'm going to play your your side two. This is a shorter clip. This is only about four minutes on this one right here. Here okay. we go. Congressman J. Edward Roush. The people should be told. I think there's nothing which is more frightening than to be confronted with something that is new, particularly in this area. And through knowledge, we can perhaps relieve the fears of a lot of people. I want to know. I should know. I deserve to know. And this curiosity which I have and which is whetted by the various sightings is such that I want to pursue it just as I think the great majority of the American people would like to pursue the question in order to come to the place where they have an answer. Major Donald Kehoe. This thing is building up rapidly. You have publicity constantly, almost every day. There's something on TV or there's a sighting report. There should be a plan, an operation, a gradual teaching of the public what these things are, building on up to the more serious aspects, but in emphasizing that there is no proof of any danger. That's the way it should have been done long ago. Astronaut Gordon Cooper. I think people are prepared for it if it were done in the right manner. But I think likewise, the same way that a lot of people don't believe anything about UFOs because of some of the totally absurd treatises that have come out on them. Everyone's afraid of the unknown, but the more they know about them, the more that we have the likelihood of somebody treating some of these with a little friendlier fashion and perhaps less frightened fashion, and maybe we can begin to find out more about them. Astronaut Jim McDivitt. 
There are an awful lot of stars in our universe, and our star, our sun, has a lot of planets around it, and it would seem highly egotistical, I think, that if we thought that we were the only planet in the entire universe that had life on it. And I can't imagine myself that there aren't environments throughout that entire universe that aren't in some way similar to ours. Mrs. Betty Hill. Knowledge belongs to everyone. I don't think anyone has the right to censor or deny or prevent anyone from learning. I think the people have the right to know because UFOs is everybody's business. Dr. J. Allen Hynek. A lot would depend on how the news was broken to us. What is the whole point? If something is so, good heavens, we should be mature enough to know what the situation is. We're just now beginning to explore beyond our own planet. It's not inconceivable that other civilizations could have already begun their exploration of other planetary systems, including our own solar system. It is, after all, one of the objectives of our space program to seek out and study other forms of life. I urge you to keep an open mind about UFOs and the probability of the existence of other intelligent life throughout the universe because it is there think about that the next time you gaze up at the stars on a clear night gaze long and hard the credibility factor of ufos needn't stretch the imagination too far I'll get to it. Oh, that was great. You know, with, ev with every person who I interviewed on that album, I was sitting there on the other side of the microphone, and while they were answering my questions, I kept thinking to myself, God, please, somebody pinch me. This is great stuff. <laughs> I, I'm getting, nobody's going to believe this. And, and, and here's another thing that people don't realize. You know, when you do an interview with someone, I mean, you're not just going to meet them for 10 or 15 minutes. You're going to sit with them for a while, spend a day with them, and get a lot of really good information in an interview. I can't block them. And, and, and like, you, you, do, you edit down to the most interesting, relevant stuff to put on a 45-minute on a 45, 45 album. And I still have all the original interview tapes that has stuff on them that no one, no one has ever heard. I haven't even listened to these recordings in almost 50 years. So there's a lot of stuff there that is just sitting there waiting to be heard. And I, that's what, one of the reasons that it's almost forcing me to, to re-release this, to give, I guess, a new generation of people uh, maybe another piece of credibility in the UFO field that maybe wasn't there. So I'm proud of it, have always been proud of this. And if it wasn't, for this record album, I never would have made it to the United Nations without this album. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that. That that is just totally amazing to me. Well, after after the album came out in 1976, and and we 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 sold some copies of it, and and it did pretty well. And several months went by, and I and I started thinking, well, okay, I've done this album. What left is there for me to do? <laughs> I mean, really, yeah. you know, who am I? I mean, you know, what what else do I think I can do? And and I thought, boy, I I would like to reach 
a larger audience somehow, if possible. And mm-hmm. and and a couple of people, friends of mine, had said, "Well, why don't you take it to the United Nations?" And I thought, "Well, I don't know, United Nations, really?" And then others said to me, "No, you 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 can't just go to the United Nations and knock on the front door and say hello." Um, may I come in and talk to someone about doing a presentation here about UFOs? And either A, they would politely ask you to leave, or they would impolitely have you arrested for even, <laughs> even thinking of such a thing. And, and, and someone else said to me, the only way you can do a presentation at the United Nations is if you are a citizen of a country that is interested in this topic and wants to do a presentation and, and and sponsor it for the country. And I thought, well, okay. And I did some digging. And in 1978, the little country of Grenada was the only game in town. No other country on earth was doing anything to open up no the, the subject of UFOs. But there in like early 1977, I started noticing every once in a while, the prime minister of Grenada, Eric Gary, was doing these little speeches and, and press conferences and trying to get the, the media and the UN interested in his personal UFO crusade. Uh, he wanted to create some kind of a, of a UFO committee that that would be open internationally for all countries of the world to, to, uh, to share information and, and, and just you know, share it with each other. And, and that he wanted the country of Grenada to be the clearinghouse. Let's have this little committee happen in my country. And I'm thinking, no, it's an interesting idea, but no, I wouldn't want to open it in, in Grenada if, if we could even get that far. And so... But again, nobody was doing anything about UFOs. So I, I got in touch with the, um, with the Grenada mission. As you probably know, every country in the United Nations they have their own offices, in and around the United Nations area in on the east side of New York, and they're called missions. Each country has its own mission, and so I just got in touch with the country of Grenada mission, and I got one of the ambassadors on the phone, introduced myself. And, and said that uh, uh, I'm Lee Spiegel. Uh, I just uh, recently finished producing a recording, a documentary record album for CBS. I wanted to say that so they would understand that I did something for a large company. And I would like to present my album to your prime minister as a gift because I have an idea of, of something that I could do that could help him and you and your country to be heard by the United Nations. And they said, come on down, bring your album down. Not not come on down to Grenada, but come on down to our mission. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Take a subway, come see us. And I did, I brought a copy of the album when it was still a vinyl album. And, uh, and they were very nice to me and they were going to uh, forward the album to Grenada, to the prime minister, and they said they'd get back to me. And a couple of weeks later, one of the ambassadors called me and said that uh, uh, Prime Minister Gary was coming to New York soon to be knighted as Sir Eric Gary in a big ceremony at the UN. Would I like to be uh, there? Would I like to come and be part and watch 
the, the ceremony because the prime minister would like to talk to you about your idea. And I said, yes, I would love that very much. Thank you. So in the meantime, I put together an actual proposal, a, a proposal of what I would like to do to, at the United Nations, who I would bring, what I would show there, how I would do it, how, what the timeline of it should be. And, and I brought this proposal with me to the UN, and it was the first time I ever set foot in the United Nations for the coronation, the, the, the knighting of Sir Eric Gary. It was a whole big deal. It was very nice to be there. When it was all over, they brought me into a private room, and then they brought the prime minister in, and they left us there alone. And I remember thinking, why would they leave the, the leader of their country alone with this guy? Exactly. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. Okay. You know, are, am I being watched? Are there, are there cameras? Yeah, you, must, you must have been. Hey, Lee, just to let you know, we only have one minute for KGRA radio. So okay. We're going to continue on, but just to let you know. Okay. Yeah. Well, and so, and that's kind of how it all started. Uh, over a handshake deal, Eric Gary agreed to sponsor my proposal and I, I became an actual delegate of Grenada. They issued me a delegate's card, which made me officially a sponsor of Grenada and allowed me to go to the UN whenever I want through the main gates of security to have meetings with people. And because of what I was doing there, um, word got back to the, um, the State Department of Washington, we later learned, and they were also keeping an eye on what I was doing with the people that I was bringing to the United Nations. And then Great. on and on. Hey, All right. So we're just going to say goodbye right now to the people at KGRA Radio. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, hang in there. We'll be right back. Yeah, great. So we're continuing on here. I forgot to announce that uh, next week's guest, I wanted to tell the people over at KGRA Radio, but before I forget, we have Frank Marches. He's the uh, senior planetary astronomer at the SETI Institute. Uh, he'll be on next week. Uh, so it should be a very interesting show. And we are going to talk about UFOs and SETI together somehow. I, I have a question for you to ask him. Okay. The question is, why why doesn't SETI why don't SETI scientists especially astronomers why don't they like to talk about UFOs in general what is the overall opinion of SETI of UFOs oh i had Seth Shostak on 3 yeah times, and uh, <laughs> he basically told me that and some people are pretty angry about it but he, he's a very good debater by the way mm -hmm. and he told me that uh, if you had a wing of the Smithsonian with UFO parts, then maybe he would believe <laughs> that they exist. And so I basically said, does this threaten your, uh, your, your ability to fundraise for SETI? Is that why you don't want to talk about it? You know, I asked him questions like that. And, you know, he was very good at working around the question. For yeah. But, uh, and, and he, he was very good at, you know, kind of making me feel like a fool for asking some of the questions I did. But, you know, now he's part of the Galileo Project with Avi Loeb, 
So I wonder how that's all going. Well, you know, I, I don't know who told me this, but several months ago, when I first read that his name was associated with the Galileo Project, someone else told me that he's not actually really a part of it. I don't know that he was even invited by uh, by Dr. Avi Loeb. I mean, it could be wrong, but Seth Shostak's overall uh, opinion about UFOs is that until like until the Smithsonian has pieces and parts from a UFO or a flying saucer, um, then th there's no evidence at all that we should even consider that something from far away is visiting us. They, they, they just won't consider that. And Avi Loeb's opinion is we think that something has come past us and that there might be other things that indicate that we are not alone. And I wouldn't think that they would want anyone in that study, the Galileo study or the project, to, to be tossing in sentences like, no, we're, we're, there is there is no evidence that there's any life out there. Uh, all, all that we're doing is just putting all of our money and our funding into listening with our little radio telescopes and find a signal. And and then you say to them, okay, what, what if we do get a signal from somewhere? And it's maybe like a, a two or three words like, hi, and we can actually get that signal and we can figure out a way of replying like, hi, back to you. How long would that exchange take? How many more decades would it be to get to the third exchange? And there'll be none of us left on Earth anyway who are talking yeah. about this now. And it's like, really? And and I once did a project with Dr. Frank Drake, who created the SETI Institute. We, we worked on a radio show together, and we were alone in a conference room. And I said to him, Frank, um, I, I know how the, the SETI Institute normally likes to avoid talking about UFOs. And how do you feel about it? And he said to me, well, I, I haven't really been shown anything by officials that would make me consider that something is here. And I said, but Frank, they're landing in people's backyards. And does that mean that everyone who makes these kinds of reports are lying? That they're out of their minds, they're they're crazy, uh, they're they're just totally out of out of reality. We we can't continue to have that attitude about people. There has to be a new attitude that requires science looking at this. There's too much going on, uh, and I even reminded him, like I do all the time. Frank, have you ever heard of General Nathan Twining, 1947 memo? I mean, come on. This is nothing new. I'm glad you asked those questions anyway. You know, and, um, you know, I've, I've talked to, I talked to Stan Friedman many times about SETI, you know, and he had that, I forget what he called it, the uh, silly, uh, I, I forget what he, he had a great phrase for it. But, but anyway, um, you know, it, it's better than doing nothing, them yeah. at least looking. But, I mean, for them to actually find a radio signal we have no idea how they would communicate. That's right. We have no idea when and how um, different society levels can pass by each other, <clears throat> you know, for technology or, or what type of technology, you know, are they so far advanced that they're using something that radio signals are passe for, for thousands of years? Who knows? But um, 
if they find something, I think that James Webb has more of a chance in finding something than um, with the atmospheres. They they will be able to, to detect, uh, you know, pollutions in atmospheres, I believe, by colors or something. Yeah, the, about about a week ago, one of the one of the first images that came back from the web um, was an image that uh, they said they were definitely now able to 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 know one of the large exoplanets around a far sun. Um, it now shows definitely that it has water in its atmosphere, and wow, and we, and we didn't know that before wow. before James Webb got got turned on. Right. So now it, it's not to say that this planet has life on it or what kind of life it is, but the fact that we're that much closer to even knowing. But again, then you have to you have to ask the next question. Okay, well, so let's say we find whatever maybe is the closest exoplanet to Earth that maybe has possible life on it. So what is my, my question? How do we get there? We, we currently don't have the technology, the, the, the Star Trek or the Star Wars technology, warp speed, hyperdrive, to get us there in a couple of minutes. We, we don't have that. But it's like, Every time Stanton Friedman used to do a lecture, he would always say to his audiences, he would say, all of the skeptics, the, the naysayers, the debunkers, they all live by the same mantra. And that mantra is, don't bother me with the facts. Yeah. My yeah. mind is already made up. Yeah. Yeah. Or, he, or he would say, another one, he would say, as he says on the album, when somebody says that that bit of UFO evidence um, is impossible. What they're really saying is, I don't know how to do that. Yeah. So, so if I don't know how to do it, that means nobody else knows how to do it either. And and how long have we been with technology that can fly in the skies? I mean, we're talking Wright brothers or pre-Wright brothers with yeah. with aircraft. But has it been more than two hundred years that we've had flying ability technology? No. So let's say. Any other planet somewhere out there that may be, oh, let's give them 500 years ahead of us. Oh, let's let's be let's be nice. Give them a thousand years ahead of us. You think someone who's a thousand years ahead of us now has the ability to do some hopscotching through wormholes, or better yet, um, time travel? The whole Michael Masters idea of many UFOs could be us our descendants using time travel technology in the distant future to come back in time to study their own past. Gotta love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do love that. I think that is a, a fantastic oh. thought. Um, so I was, I actually got to see the James Webb uh, telescope as it was being built. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, I took a bunch of pictures just looking for them now. I have them somewhere. Ah. But, um, you know, people are all dressed up in their like hazmat white suits. And yeah, they were very, very careful this time because, you know, the Hubble spacecraft, I mean, the Hubble telescope, when that went up, it had two microns were off on the mirror, which caused blurriness. Yeah. Now the web had a like a folding type of mirror which is really amazing that everything worked perfectly because they only had one shot at a million miles away. That's right. There's no way we could ever get to it to, to work on it. Exactly. So yeah. Uh, yeah. we had the one shot and 
can you imagine with the billions of dollars, I think it went way over budget. Uh, they kept having to raise the stakes on that to make sure that it, it, it's at a very cold temperature, something like 300 below zero Fahrenheit. And uh, it, has to re it has to maintain that cold temperature in order to work properly. So there's a, a shield for the sun. There's all these different yeah. things that are involved. It's really amazing technology. Uh, I know. And the, I think that I read an early report that once it got out there and it unfolded and it was getting going through all of its early testing, uh, that there were a few instances where micro, micro, micro meteoroids had hit yeah. it, you know? Yep. Yeah. Uh, but didn't And they're really... going like 40 some odd thousand miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a, yeah. a bullet can, travels at a fraction of that. A small yeah. It's, fraction it, of that. It's, it's like, so the amount of money and the amount of risks but so far, um, the rewards have been incredible so far. I hope we get the 20 years plus out of it. That would be just amazing. Yeah. There's a, someone in chat that has asked uh, uh, over and over again. I, I'm not familiar with this person. Maybe it's the first time he's visiting. Uh, welcome anyway, Ray Nash. Uh, he wants to know why there aren't any uh, interviews with Max Brazel. Uh, Mac Brazel. Is it Mac Brazel from uh, Roswell? Well, uh, I don't. I don't. Interviews. I've, I've never seen one. I don't know. Hmm. I I have heard. I have heard audio interviews that he had done, um, possibly with like one of the local Roswell radio stations. But I believe that he did them um, under under the watchful eye of whoever was in charge of keeping things quiet on what it was that crashed on the ranch there in Roswell. Because once, once he went to the military and, you know, started saying, I got this thing landed and I've got these pieces and, and I'm going to go to the, to the authorities or I'm going to go to the press and talk about it. Well, then, you know, the authorities, as they did the day after the initial famous Roswell uh, daily record report, you know, military captures UFO or flying saucer. And the very next day, nope, it was a weather balloon. Sorry, we goofed. You don't make that kind of a goof. Uh, and so I think that yeah. in, in order to keep Mac Brazel quiet without actually out and out making him disappear uh, was probably a way of, of allowing him to do some interviews. I would bet, Martin, that if you, if you or anyone were to just do uh, an actual Google search for uh, for any kind of audio clips from Mac Brazel. And you know you know who else might be the person to talk to about this? Um, Dave Marler, I, mm. I think. We might have an archive of it. He, he, Dave Marler has the most incredible UFO facility of research in his at his Albuquerque home. I've been to the place. It's in, in fact, uh, upon his demise, hopefully not too soon, everything he has, is going to go to the University of New Mexico. He already has. He is now the curator of the complete NICAP original files, the complete J. Allen Hynek personal UFO files. All that stuff was shipped to him over a year ago so that he can take everything, and he's in the process now of digitizing everything. I think I'm going to have to go visit him. You're going to have to go visit him and maybe even broadcast one of your shows. That's I would like to do that. It's um, he, he I'm would welcome talk to him about that. And he, I know he'd love to have me out there. I'm yes, going to actually yes, meet him up and I'm going to be in Shag Harbor in October 
I'm going to do a talk up there. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun. And Dave and I are going to be hanging out together. Oh, that should be a lot of fun. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, now I want to, I want you to, I know you've talked about this many times on my show, but it's so incredible. Uh, this guy has been patient, asked right from the very beginning, if you would talk about this and it's right here. Could you talk about your amazing sighting in North Carolina, the Dorito? Well, <laughs> yeah, I know you've told it many times, but I love hearing it every time because it's just amazing. Okay. Um, and at some point I'm going to ask you, but not, not yet. I'm going to ask you to put one of those two pages up on the screen again that, that you were showing before at the end of both of the clips that you aired yeah, before. Yeah, I okay. do have that. Okay, but don't put it up yet. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll cue you for that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Um, in 1975, while I was in New York uh, putting together um, the interviews for my UFOs, the Credibility Factor record album, I got a call one day from Dr. Hynek uh, at the Center for UFO Studies. Uh, and he told me that he was getting uh, a variety of phone calls from sheriff's people, highway patrolmen, um, police officers uh, from the Lumberton, North Carolina area. Uh, and they were seeing something odd in the skies for like two or three nights in a row. And a lot of a lot of police officers, a lot of police and law enforcement agencies and departments around the country were all given an 800 number that Alan Hynek had provided them all with through the Center for UFO Studies. Basically said, I'm Alan Hynek. I used to do this for Project Blue Book. Now I have the Center for UFO Studies. I'd like to provide you free of charge with an 800 number. If you folks get inundated with the calls in your area, give us a call. We'll see what we can do to help. And so the Lumberton police officials contacted him and said, we don't have any people down here that can investigate this. Can you come and help us with this? And he, he asked me, he said, I know that you're working on your UFO album, but do you have any time to go down to Lumberton and check it out? And could you do some interviews down there with people who are seeing this strange object. So I said, what are they seeing? And he said, well, here in 1975, they're reporting something that we haven't really heard much about uh, in recent history. They're seeing something, they're saying it's either a V-shaped or a triangular shape or a boomerang-shaped object in the sky. So I said, okay, let me get this straight. Instead of a classic flying saucer, circular shape, you know, flat on the bottom, domed on top. You're asking me to go there and check out a flying Dorito? Is is that what we're <laughs> what yeah. we're getting at here? He said, "Well, if you don't want to go," and I said, "Alan, don't finish that. Don't, don't finish that thought. You're, <laughs> you're you're the last person in America I want to piss off. Uh, I'm going. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely going." Uh, and he said, look, if you get some really good interviews and write up a report, I'll publish them through the Center for UFO Studies. And I said, that, great, thank you. And off I went and I actually flew down to uh, North Carolina with uh, one of the reporters for the National Star uh, newspaper, which was competing with the National Enquirer um, back then in 1975. And 
And I, I got there, I flew into Fayetteville and, and w was picked up by someone from Lumberton. They drove us down and instead of checking into the local Holiday Inn, we went right to the Sheriff's Department. And that's where I met Sheriff's D Deputy and Dispatcher Ron Thompson, who I'm still in touch with all these years later. Hmm. And Ron Thompson was, uh, was on the dispatcher um, board that night. And I was there for a while talking to a variety of people. And all of a sudden, after the sun went down, um, the calls started coming in to the, to, the, to the board. And he said to me, we've got a lot of calls coming in. Let's go. And I said, well, tell me what we're going to do. He said, you're going to come with me in one car. We're going to have a, a police radio. We're going to keep in touch with the other police officers in different places. And we're going to stay in touch and see where this thing is being seen. And, and we'll follow it and try and catch up to it. And that's what we did. And off we went in pursuit of, of the flying Dorito. <laughs> um, and I, I, was, I was really excited because I didn't know what to expect. You know, I mean, what, what could you expect in a situation like this? Um, but just a few minutes later, we're off uh, in the wilderness there in, in the rural area outside of Lumberton, North Carolina, and we pulled up in front of this field and everybody got out of the cars and turned off uh, the, uh, the car lights and the engines. And it was very quiet out there. And the only sound that we could hear in the area was the sound of animals that were very nervous about something. You could hear horses in the darkness. You could hear dogs barking. There's something that was bothering them. And there, were no, uh, there was no moon out to cast any kind of glare. And so we could see stars. And, and as we looked across the field in front of us, there was a line of trees. And from the left side, moving very slowly to, from our left to our right, there was a white light. And then it became a red light. And then back to white, back to red, just very slowly above the tops of the trees moving. And then at one point it stopped and started moving again across the field in our direction. Uh, and we just stood there and, and watched it as it came across the field, getting closer and closer. Well, that that's, that's actually, uh, you can keep that one up there for now, but that's not the one yet, but th that that's good because as it got closer to us, that's kind of what it looked like as it got close to us and it stopped. Remember, it, was, it wasn't just daylight. It was darker at the time. It had a, a row of white lights up on one side underneath and red lights with a larger light at the apex where the two sides came together. And it just hovered there in the air above us. And it, it made no noise. There was no sound. There was no engine, no humming, nothing. It just sat there in the sky above us. And I remember thinking, well, I feel pretty secure. I'm surrounded by sheriff's people, highway patrolmen. They got their six shooters yeah. <laughs> ready, you know, just in case. And then a moment later, I'm thinking, wait, what, what am I thinking? What am I saying to myself? How, how confident and safe do I feel? Because if whatever we're looking at up there is here to eat us or to take us away to eat us later, <laughs> you know, um, yes. then, then, you know, we've had it. And so I didn't, I wasn't scared, 
because I was excited about it. And then, and then as we watched it, and are you getting ready to show the other picture? That, I can't uh, find the other picture, and I oh. know you sent it to me. No, no, no. I, I mean, you had, you, you had it up before uh, at the end of the clips. It was There, there were two pictures. Oh, 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 this one right here. Okay, now can, yes. if you can zoom okay. in on... I can't zoom in. That's important. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. There's a painting on the bottom right-hand corner. Yeah. It kind of depicts the situation. Yeah, you, and, can, uh, you, can, you can see the yeah. thing in the sky. And what, what you're seeing there is from the, the, the bright light on the top of it, it shot this beam of light down to the ground. And in the middle of the ground there, you can see one of the figures there with his arms outstretched. That was me. That the that the painter Dale Hendrickson painted me there to to indicate that that's how close I was to this beam of light that hit the ground in front of us, and and the the beam of light was only there for a couple of seconds, and then it went back up into the craft again, still no sound, then the whole thing turned almost like an amber color, and started moving quickly away in another direction. The whole thing turned. <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 was it was like um, cold, it was like a, it's not a good picture, but this is uh Dale uh no, that, Dale Hendrickson. He's uh, a great nice guy, by the way. Uh, he's an amazing painter of yes. outer space um, yep. scenes, and uh, he called me one day a few years ago and asked me to describe what I thought was the most amazing moment of our encounter, and I described this moment, and he said, "Would would you like it if I could paint?" that kind of a moment and and maybe offer it and show it at UFO conferences around the country? Uh, and I said, yeah, I think that would be great. And I said to him, would you like it if I connect you with Sheriff, uh, Sheriff's Deputy, now retired, Ron Thompson, who was standing next to me when that thing was in the sky above us? Because uh, let, let him tell his version of the story. You might as well get two people talking about it. And I connected him with Ron. And from both of our stories, he came up with with that, uh, and and it's quite nice. I've I've seen that in person here. I just found an, another um, rendition of it, but it's it's pretty much clear there. And you look like the guy that looks like Serpico, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you were told that a few times. Yeah, a few times. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, Serpico, or if you, if you will, because of the folk singer, Cat Stevens. Okay. Oh, Cat Stevens. Yes. Um, that's a little better, a better of a picture of, but anyway, um, that is just an amazing story. It, it is. It's and a, it keeps it's, going because there was another officer in another location that oh, got out of his car and flashed a light at it or something. Yeah, wow, that, yeah. What, we, what, we, we kept finding other police officers in different counties and, uh, we stopped at one place and found two police officers who were out of their car and, and they, uh, they knew that we were coming cause everybody was connected by uh, police radio. And they said to me, we saw this thing coming down the road in our direction, and it got to right above our car, and without stopping, without stopping on a dime, it made a 90-degree angle quick turn and went flying off. And I've talked with people who said if there was anything living inside this thing, they, they could not have withstood that kind of an immediate change of, of direction. But again, see, we're talking, this is what we think based on our knowledge exactly. of how we would react in a technology that we don't know anything about. One thing I'd like to ask you, Lee, do you think there was, uh, just because it's something I, I, I hear now and then, and it's probably a kind of a weird thing to, to say, but do you feel there was any time dilation of any kind? No, not, not that I either know of 
or ever experienced. I don't think anyone else did either. I think uh, the whole idea of, of what we experienced, and it wasn't just that night. I was there maybe on the third or fourth night when this was happening. I, I often like to, people will often ask me, why don't the UFOs just show themselves everywhere and just, you know, appear over the cities like in War of the Worlds or, you know, or, or Independence Day or whatever. And, and, and I keep saying to people, well, they have been showing themselves a lot. And, and my response to them is, if the UFOs didn't want to be seen, especially at night, all they have to do is turn their lights off. I mean, yeah. you know, and end of topic, but they want to be seen. They know they're being seen. How could they not? They, they know what they're doing, and they've always known throughout history. They, they're not trying to hide from humans. They know what they're doing for whatever their reasons. I mean, really, yeah. uh, it, it, I can't think of any other way to, to respond to that. And so I think that wherever they show up, you know, they showed up, they hovered above us, shot a beam of light down as if, as if to say when the beam went back up and it turned and went away, it was as if it was saying to us, yeah, okay, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to go screw around with someone else now. So we, after it left, after it left, I found a police chief um, sitting in his car um, beside the road and he knew I was coming to ask him some questions, so I asked him, I understand you had a little excitement here. He said, yeah, I was sitting in the car, eating my sandwich, and the whole inside of my car was lit up with some bright light. I said, well, what did you do? He said, I, I looked out, looked up at the sky, and there was this thing parked in the sky right above my car. And it made me think, although, no, I was going to say it made me think of the, the moment in Close Encounters of the Third Kind when Richard Dreyfuss is in his truck. Yeah. And he does that. But then I realized, no, 1975, Lumberton, that was two years before the movie came out. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, this, and this police officer was doing that, <laughs> looking up. Yeah. Uh, and so I said to him, well, what did you do then? He said, well, I reached the back of the car, pulled out. We had this official, whenever there's a, we need like an official light for any emergencies on the roads. We have this big police lantern, and I aimed it up at the thing, and I blinked at it, and it blinked back at me. You know how many times I've heard that? You heard that Father Gill case? Oh, yes. You that so many times. From Papua New Guinea, yes. Yeah. There's one case where I heard of, uh, I was speaking about this recently on a show, where the person was doing like the flashing, and then he thought, all right, now I'm thinking I'm going to flash. And the thing reacted to him. <laughs> that's it reacted funny. to him thinking about it. That, you know, when I say that's funny, I don't really mean it's funny. There are so many cases. Uh, maybe, maybe we didn't know about these cases in earlier years, but now you hear about where a lot of the UFO phenomenon is tied into the paranormal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and things that people describe like that, that involves thought processes or consciousness. Uh, and, and, and more and more of these stories are coming out that, that says to me, people aren't just making this stuff up. They're really experiencing things that have like nothing to do 
with what they're seeing. It has a whole other possibility. There were stories that came out of the 1980 Rendlesham Forest encounter um, of the Bentwaters case, where so many military eyewitnesses saw things in and out of the forest, and there were reports that some of them saw something that was on the ground, and some claims that some of the military personnel got close to the object, and, and the closer they got to it, it, the thing moved out of the way. It didn't fly out of the way. It just moved away like a living thing, would just move and didn't want to be touched. Mm. Like, whoa. So what are we dealing with here? There's a lot more to, to, to just, it's more than just something that looks like a flying saucer or a Dorito. There's something more happening here. And for what it's worth, there's a big part of me now that's thinking maybe this is the reason why the governments of the world haven't been entirely honest or totally transparent with the public about what's going on. Because maybe this is a little more serious than what most people would be able to handle. Hmm. I never used to think that. Hmm. You know, it's, it's that whole thing, well, will the, will the public panic? I, I don't know if panic is the right word, but will is the, is the public ready to be told what's really behind the phenomenon? Uh, do you think I, they do you think they actually know though? I I think that the governments of the world know more than they're saying. Uh, are probably know more than we do. Yes. Yeah, but I think that there there, there could be a reason why they're not saying anything more about it because because once one leader of some major co country goes forward and says oh we're going to just release this well then the cat's all out of the bag the the pandora's box is open and and then what do you do then how do you respond how is it going to affect religion what, what does the vatican think about this why does the vatican have two different places where they have astronomical observatories and they have teams of vatican astronomers and quite uh, amazing looking uh, looking yeah. looking into the heavens yes. what are, what are they looking for why yeah yeah, yeah. come on i mean I, someone's got to ask these questions and that's my job <laughs> it seems to me that i either had someone or i spoke with someone one of the astronomers at one time um i don't think i had him on the show i think i'd remember that but I was uh, trying to, I believe, which would be really fascinating. Um, and that's somewhere in the United States, that particular uh, telescope. Uh, Arizona, Arizona. It's Arizona. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, it's on, it's on a mountain in Arizona. Um, I, I just think it's all fascinating. Uh, I, I think that I'm going to have Colonel Chuck Holt is going to be on my show on Thursday night. Yeah, uh, he was one of the primary witnesses at the Rendlesham yes. encounter in 1980, and and he, he's going to talk about how he believes that there is a slow disclosure going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say to him, "Okay, but who's in charge of how slow should this be? What will determine when the slowness of it has to stop?" <laughs> Great questions. I can't wait to watch that. I've had Charles on a number of times, and um, yeah, and I hope to have him back. He's he's always a he's always a great guest. He's he's got a lot to say. Yes, and and he doesn't mind 
the controversy of what he has to say. And, uh, and I, I appreciate that. I respect him for that. And he's one of these people that wish it never happened. Yeah. He, he's very sincere about that. Yeah. So, uh, because it, he didn't need it as a part of his life. And he, he's told me that he's put it away, uh, for a while sometimes, you know, kind of put it off so he didn't have to deal with it, but it always, he always comes back to it. It always comes back to him. Actually. He told and, me d decades ago when we first met, he said to me, all that I will tell you right now is that when, when the truth finally comes out and the public is told what's really going on, it's going to change reality as we know it. And when he said that to me, I went, okay, I accept that. And that's a great way to end this interview <laughs> with, with him. But it was yeah. like, wow. And, and I, I believe that. I think that it will change reality. And and maybe he's right that it'll have to be it must be slow disclosure, but you know, on the other end of that, what is it that they're going to disclose that requires it to happen slowly? You know, I don't know yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think also someone said something like that. And I'm trying to remember. Lou Elizondo said it's been happening. You know, I mean, and I know you ha you recently uh, had a meeting with him. Yes. Um, I know you can't really talk about that, but anyway, uh, I, I think it's interesting and I, I, I feel definitely that there's been a lot of changes in the, I've been doing this for over 10 years in the last three years, there's been some major changes in, in the attitude in general. It's an easy topic yeah. to talk about these days. Yeah. Not, nothing you want to worry too much about, um, talking about and being embarrassed about. And yeah. I like that. I like that a lot because I don't, feel like the total odd uncle or whatever you want to say, you know, the oddball um, in, in a conversation. I I've, always, like. I've always thought of you as my oddball uh, uncle. Nephew. <laughs> or nephew. <Yeah. laughs> that's true. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I'd be the uncle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, you're just a little older. Hey, Lee, <laughs> um, so uh, we're at the, uh, I told you an hour and a half tonight and okay. we're, so we're at the end of that. And so how, uh, and did you say halt is coming up this Thursday? This Thursday night. All right. Uh, so tell people how they can uh, get a hold of that and watch that. Uh, okay. Well, it's going to be on, um, all they have to do is go to, uh, unxnetwork.com. That's unxnetwork.com. Uh, and if they do forward slash stream, S-T-R-E-A-M. So it's it's like unxnetwork.com forward slash stream. That will take them directly to the page that is the page where you can just click on the play button and hear whatever is on the air live at that moment. Yeah, so, right. so it's seven o'clock seven o'clock from seven to eight thirty Thursday, and that's seven to eight thirty Eastern time. That's right. Lee, um I of Really enjoyed our friendship over these years. As and you're always a fascinating guest. I love having you on. And uh, I wish you all all the best. And please do let us know when and how that album will be available. I will, I'll yes. definitely get the word out there. Thank so. you. Thank you so much for having me on tonight. I love talking about this stuff. Yes, I you do. I, I hope I don't come across like, like an oddball relative. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I'll get that feedback. No, but anyway, uh, all, all my best to you and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. All right. Take care. Bye. All right, everyone. So again, next week we will have, um, let's see, Frank Marches. He's the senior planetary astronomer at the SETI Institute. Again, the start time is going to be 
uh, 7 as it was tonight. And thank you all for watching. And anyone can support the show. And that's over at podcastufo.com uh, to support the show. And, and I would appreciate that and do appreciate all the listeners. And I appreciate everyone that does support the show. And we'll see you next week. Remember to keep your eyes to the sky.